Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And the story I have for you today is actually a first for us. We've done office tours on our social media in the past. And if you remember, we've actually got this like awesome map of every single country where our listeners live. Yeah, which never fails to blow my mind like every single time I see it. (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible. We have listeners in all 50 states here in the U.S., which, you know, I think we've talked about cases in most of them. But today I want to take us somewhere we haven't gone before to Hawaii, when a young woman is brutally murdered on a stormy night in 1982, the investigation into her death sparks lingering probes into police integrity and competence, forcing local residents to ask one terrifying question. How can they stay safe when danger could be wearing a badge? This is the story of Lisa Ow. morning of January 21st, 1982, in Kailua, on the island of Oahu, Hawaii, it is absolutely pouring down rain. Like, this is the type of weather where, honestly, all you want to do is curl up on your couch with a blanket and a movie. And so that's exactly what this woman named Candy is doing. She's happy to be relaxing at home in her apartment. And since her roommate is out for the night, she has the whole place to herself. Then, at about 12.45 in the morning, Candy gets a phone call. On the other end of the line is her roommate, Lisa Ow. According to Terry McMurray's piece in the Honolulu Advertiser, she's just called to let Candy know she's finished having dinner with her boyfriend, Doug Holmes, at his sister's place in Honolulu, and she's on her way back to their apartment. So Candy tells Lisa to be careful driving in the rain, and she hangs up the phone. Now, per Google Maps, she'd be about, like, a half hour from home. So between the distance and the weather, Candy isn't expecting Lisa to, like, walk in the door anytime soon. And it's already really late, so Candy goes to bed, figuring she'll see Lisa in the morning. But when Candy gets up later that morning, she finds that Lisa never came home. Right away, this feels weird to her since Lisa did call and say that she was like literally on her way. But it's totally possible that Lisa started driving and decided maybe not to risk driving in the rain. So maybe she turned around to stay with her boyfriend. Who knows? No big deal. She'll see Lisa later at their hair salon where they both work. But when Candy gets to work, there's still no sign of Lisa. She's a no call, no show. And now Candy starts to panic. Right away, she calls Lisa's parents and her boyfriend, Doug, to tell them that they should all go out and start searching for Lisa or her car, thinking, again, maybe with the bad weather, she got into an accident on her way home or something. So right away, Doug starts making the same drive Lisa would have made just 12 hours before. And then at about 12.30 p.m., he sees it. According to Charles Memminger's reporting for the Honolulu Star Bulletin, He spots Lisa's car on the side of the highway heading towards Kailua. Doug pulls over and rushes to the vehicle, but his heart sinks when he sees that the car is completely empty. Before he calls her parents or her roommate, Doug phones police who come out to the scene right away. And how close is the scene to where she lived? 
So according to that Honolulu Advertiser piece that I mentioned earlier, Lisa's car is actually only found a couple of miles from her and Candy's apartment. And it's only a mile away from her parents' house. So, I mean, she was literally almost home. And Doug was the last person to see her. Yeah, Doug tells police that Lisa was wearing yellow shorts and a v-neck blue sweater and leather Zori sandals when he last saw her. He says that he and Lisa left his sister's apartment together after they finished dinner. He walked Lisa to her car to say goodnight, then left to drive back to his dorm room at the University of Hawaii right there in Honolulu. So it's like only a few minutes away. And he says they parted on good terms, like he had no idea that anything was even wrong until he got Candy's phone call the next morning. As law enforcement examines Lisa's car, right away a couple of things stand out to them. One, her car is dead, with the lights and windshield wipers still flipped on the on position, and the keys are still in the vehicle. But here's the thing, it's like nothing was completely wrong other than the battery just being drained, because as soon as they get the battery charged a little bit, the car just starts. And remember how it was like pouring rain when she was driving? Yeah. So police noticed that Lisa's driver's side window is actually rolled down a few inches, enough that the whole inside of her car is soaked with a couple of inches of standing water on the car floor, making it impossible to dust for prints until the car dries out. But police can still search the inside of the car, though. And as they search, everything they find just makes Lisa's disappearance that much more suspicious. You see, Lisa's purse, a package, and some extra clothes are all still in her car. Things that, if she left on her own, she would have taken with her. Right. But here is the most interesting part of all. Police notice something very odd about Lisa's purse. Even though her car interior is wet, the purse itself is totally dry. Okay, suggesting what? Like someone took it out and then put it back at some point? Maybe. I mean, that's that's what it looks like, right? I guess. But is anything missing out of her purse? Well, her wallet was there. So at first glance, nothing really jumps out at them. But when police actually check inside Lisa's wallet, they discover that her driver's license is missing. According to Hawaii News Now, police hurry to check the glove box. And when they do, because they had this sneaking suspicion, they find that Lisa's car registration is missing, too. And as you can imagine, that discovery sends chills down investigators' spines because they know all too well who asks for those two specific things. Right. Other police. Or someone pretending to be police. This idea of someone impersonating an officer isn't completely new to investigators on Oahu. You see, they have had periodic complaints from local drivers over the past couple of years about a man out on this stretch of highway who pretends to be a police officer in order to get women to pull over. And it's not exactly hard to rig a car to look like an unmarked police car. Like, basically, all someone would have to do is put a flashing blue light behind the grill and there. It's like creepy and very simple. Mm -hmm. And while up to this point, no one has been killed, according to more of Terry McMurray's reporting for the Honolulu Advertiser, law enforcement understands that at least one incident did turn violent when the assailant found out that the driver was actually a long-haired man instead of a woman. 
So with the missing documents and no clue as to Lisa's whereabouts, the police are already considering the possibility that she could be in serious danger. Their working theory is that Lisa was abducted between 1 and 1.30 a.m. by someone posing as law enforcement. And again, this is based on the time she left, but also at some point after Lisa's disappearance, a tip comes in from someone claiming to have seen her car parked with another vehicle near where Lisa's car was found. And that happened at about 1.10 a.m. on the morning she went missing. Over the next few days, as search efforts intensify, police are able to fingerprint and photograph Lisa's car once it dries out. And that's when they discover something strange. Lisa's car has been totally cleaned. According to Hawaii News Now, there is not a shred of evidence to be found. So with the car looking like a dead end, searches continue on the ground. Lisa's parents had put out a call for help to their church, and since then, around 100 volunteers had come out over the few days to help police search for Lisa. I mean, they're going up and down the highway, they're going into some regional parks, along hiking trails, along golf courses, but there is no trace of Lisa anywhere. So on January 25th, this is four days after Lisa went missing, police take a helicopter for an aerial scan of a swamp not far from where Lisa's car was found. But even that scan turns up nothing. Now, what I found interesting about, like, all of the news accounts during this time is that the police kind of talk to the media like Lisa's already dead. Like, they're not treating this like we might expect in a missing persons case. Like, one detective on the case even talked to the Honolulu Star Bulletin and is like, you know, if she was dumped that night, the rain could have washed her body down the stream into the swamp. Okay, but they don't have any evidence one way or another, right? None of them are making public at that point, but it's clear that they have an idea of what happened, however they're coming to that conclusion. But just as hope is dwindling, that very same evening, police get a new tip that may shed some light on Lisa's case. Another woman is in her car driving in Honolulu County when suddenly she looks in her rearview mirror and notices a car following pretty close behind her. At first, she thinks it's another local driver, but then the car's front grille illuminates with a pair of flashing blue lights, signaling that she should pull over. So she pulls over and waits, watching as the driver gets out and approaches her car. He asks to see her driver's license, which is, again, pretty standard for a traffic stop. But then he follows it up with another request. He asks her to get out of her car and get into his car so he can review her license. Uh, no thank you. Absolutely not. Yeah, right away, this woman knows deep in her gut that this situation is super messed up. And so she speeds off. I mean, her heart is already pounding in her chest, but it feels like it's going to fly out of her throat when she looks back and sees that this guy is following her. Luckily, he's not in pursuit of her long before he turns off onto another road, and she doesn't waste any time going right to police. According to another one of Charles Memminger's pieces in the Honolulu Star Bulletin, even though she couldn't get a license plate number, she's able to give law enforcement a pretty solid description of both the man and his car. She describes him as being a white man, about 25 years old, with brown eyes, and with what she calls a baby face who spoke good English. She says that 
He was about 5 foot 10 and weighed maybe 180 pounds, and she describes the car as being a white, older model American car in good condition. And why is she pointing out that he spoke good English, like in an English-speaking country and state? I mean, I've been to Hawaii, and I feel like everyone there spoke English really well. Okay, so I haven't been to Hawaii, so I didn't know, but I literally got stuck on this same thing and had to actually look it up. And apparently, there's enough of a variation in languages in Hawaii that it actually is notable. So instead of him speaking Hawaiian or Hawaiian Creole or an Asian language, he spoke, like she said, good English. Now, the source mentioned it as something like the woman told police specifically, so I thought it was worth including. Okay, gotcha. Anyway, so... Hearing all this, police have to wonder, could this man who committed this, you know, attempted assault or whatever it was going to be, could this man be connected to Lisa Ow? Well, and all of this sounds like a good enough description for a composite sketch. That's what I thought, too. But I scoured the Internet looking for one, but it never showed up in any of my research. The searches for Lisa and for this unknown man continue over the next week with help from the Hawaii State Rescue Unit, members of the Army Reserve, and more volunteers, while high school students distribute over 150,000 flyers across the island of Oahu. The biggest search efforts are called off on January 29th, but smaller groups refuse to lose their momentum and they keep looking. And then... On January 31st, 10 days since anyone had last seen or heard from Lisa, a phone call comes in just before 2 p.m. with the news police have been both hoping for and dreading. A body has been found on the side of Mount Tantalus. As Terry McMurray wrote for another Honolulu advertiser piece, when police hurry to the scene, the man who called it in tells them that he was out walking his dog on one of the mountain roads when he caught a whiff of something, something just terrible. It was a smell that had no place among the serene grass and guava brush. He says he was so alarmed by the smell that he climbed down the embankment to look for the source only to find it was worse than he ever could have imagined. About 25 feet further down was a nude female body lying face down in the grass. Sure enough, police find this body just where the dog walker indicated. Since she's pretty badly decomposed, there's no way to get a visual identification. But since no other women have been reported missing recently, it seems likely to be Lisa. Officers and homicide investigators spend the rest of the afternoon searching the area for her clothes and any clues that might confirm for them who this person is. But by the time the body is taken off the mountain and transferred to the morgue around 6.30 that evening, all they have are some debris samples. No clothes no name, just this gnawing suspicion. But the next day, the Honolulu City Medical Examiner makes it official. The body on the mountain belongs to Lisa Ow. She was identified through dental records and jewelry that she was still wearing when she was found. Two necklaces and three rings, including a class ring with Lisa's initials. With this grim news, police confirm that this is no longer a search for a missing person. It is now a homicide investigation, and a hunt for a murderer. How close was Lisa's body to where her car was found? Well, like I said earlier, her car is only a couple of miles from her apartment in Kailua. But Lisa's body is found about 10 miles back in the other direction, like back towards Honolulu where she was like coming from that night. But the mystery of how Lisa's body got so far away from her car is far from the only unanswered question police have to contend with. According to more of Charles Memminger's reporting, 
Lisa's body is so decomposed that the medical examiner is unable to determine a cause of death or even a time of death. Honestly, you name a way to frustrate an investigation, it's happening in this case. Police have no motive, no suspects, and now no clue as to how Lisa even died. All they have is their theory about a phony cop. What about Lisa's boyfriend, though? Like, obviously, I feel like looking at the partner is true crime cliche number one, but he was also the last person to see her alive. Well, yeah, so Lisa's boyfriend, Doug, is definitely interviewed by police, but they're, at least at this time, not looking at him as a possible suspect. And really, that's because they're digging deeper into the strange world of police impersonators. And them digging into that world is about to pay off. On February 4th, Honolulu police announced that they've actually arrested one of these guys, one of these impersonators. Suzanne Sway reported in the Honolulu Advertiser that law enforcement picked up a man named Donald Santana and charged him with impersonating a police officer and possession of a switchblade after he picked up a hitchhiker and pretended to be a detective. But here's the catch. Police don't think Donald is connected to Lisa's murder. Now, they don't specify why exactly, but since Donald is in his late 40s, not in his mid-20s, like the baby face, I'm assuming it's because he doesn't match that description. So with one impersonator off the street, law enforcement has another person in mind for Lisa's death, someone that they call their prime suspect. There's just one minor detail. What? Police don't actually know his name. Okay, cool. So they're basically just saying, like, we know someone did this, and that's it? So here's what happened. According to the Hawaii Tribune Herald, another woman comes forward to police and tells them a story that's becoming all too familiar. She claims she was pulled over by a man pretending to be an officer on the very same night that Lisa went missing, only a half an hour after she left dinner to drive home to Kailua. As she recounts to police, this woman was driving on the highway when she, too, saw those flashing blue grill lights in her rearview mirror, and so she pulled over her car. And I feel like this is a good time to remind people that it's okay to take a beat and verify that you're really actually getting pulled over. Turn on your flashers, slow down so they know that you see them, you're aware of them, but I mean, you are legally allowed to drive to a safe, well-lit place. Yeah, and you are. If you have your phone on you, you can even call police and verify that whoever's behind you trying to pull you over is one of them. Especially when you're talking about like an unmarked vehicle. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I understand that people of marginalized communities might fear police brutality by not complying right away, but it's also important that everyone knows their rights. Definitely. And listen, for our listeners here in the U.S., I would absolutely recommend checking with local civil rights organizations and your state's branch of the ACLU to get a better picture of the laws around traffic stops in your location. Because again, it could help you in a time like this. So anyways, this woman tells law enforcement that she did pull over for this person she believed to be a cop, and he told her that she was driving too fast. What I find interesting, though, is that unlike the other traffic stop I told you about, this woman says this weird dude didn't try to, like, lure her into his car. He just let her go, but not before she got a good look at him and his car. She describes him as being a white man in his late 30s, maybe early 40s, with hazel eyes and graying blonde hair, around 5'10", and weighing maybe 200 pounds. So this isn't the baby face? No, and his car is different too. A large, green, four-door American late model instead of that white car described by the other woman. 
So police have this solid-ish description of this person that they're declaring as their prime suspect in Lisa's murder. And I, again, nothing happened to this woman. I have to assume it was because, like, it was on the same night. And they can put him on the highway where Lisa's car was found on the night she disappeared. According to Suzanne Sway's reporting in the Honolulu Advertiser, police do actually make a composite sketch of three separate men believed to be impersonating police, including this guy, who, again, they're calling their suspect. But police won't be releasing those sketches to the public. What? Why not? The article doesn't say, which I'm sorry, but like not making the sketches public feels like it defeats the purpose of having them made in the first place. I was literally about to say, what's the point if it's just like you and the other guys working the case who have the sketch? Yeah, I mean, I assume they distribute it like between law enforcement. So I don't know if it's like a keep an eye out. But don't you think like getting it out to more people might be helpful if you literally don't have a name? What do I know? I. Yeah, I'm baffled by this one. So while these sketches stay behind the blue wall, reports of police impersonations just keep on rolling right in. But only a handful of these reports have the kind of details police actually need. Determined not to let the investigation cool off, police turn inward and consider an uncomfortable possibility. What if the person who pulled Lisa over that night wasn't a fake police officer? What if he really was an officer of the law? And so with that idea in mind, officers start to look through the force's disciplinary records, looking for anyone who might fit their bill. And one name sticks out right away. Thomas D. Byrne. According to Suzanne Sway in James Dooley's article in the Honolulu Advertiser, Thomas was convicted of second-degree sex abuse in September of 1981 for assaulting a teenage girl that he met during the department's police ride-along program. Oh my god. He was sentenced to basically a slap on the wrist. He got like a fine, some community service, mandatory therapy, nothing that would even come close to impacting his life the way he impacted his victims. But get this, despite being found guilty, he's been allowed to remain on the police force up until this point when at this point he's finally fired. And let me reiterate that a convicted sex offender was allowed to keep his job collect his government paycheck, interact with the public, and enjoy all the privileges of his position for months. It makes my blood boil. Yeah. Now, since the police chief just happened to be unavailable for comment to the media about why it took so long to actually get Thomas off the force, it's impossible to know why he wasn't fired way before this. Right, because the way it looks right now says sex abuse is allowed, but... A murder investigation is where they decided to draw the line. Seems so, yeah. Now, Thomas voluntarily comes in for questioning, and there's some discrepancies in my source material if police get a warrant to search his car and house or if he just gives them permission. But either way, Thomas's house is only a block away from where Lisa's parents live. So do we know where he was the night Lisa was killed? You know, I don't know if that he ever does give police an alibi. You see, even though Thomas goes to the station to be questioned, he won't actually say anything until his lawyer arrives. And when his lawyer arrives, surprise, surprise, like, dude shuts all that down right away. So police kind of hit this roadblock with him. And despite the hurdles, they keep looking into him while also continuing down other paths as they work to build their case. Basically, at this point, they're not ruling anything out. They're not ruling anyone out yet. 
The investigation continues throughout early spring and into summer as police get ready to turn their evidence over to the prosecutor, who will decide whether or not to move forward and press charges. Okay, but press charges against who? Thomas? So that's the thing. Like, in the source material, no one specific is named. Like, everything up until this point has been about him. But again, no charges have been pressed up to this point. It just says that they're going to present it to the prosecutor. And they'll decide. Yeah. But the one thing they have is apparently when they present this case to the prosecutor, they feel like it's extra strong because they have a surprise witness. According to more of Suzanne Sway's reporting, the department delivers their evidence to the prosecutor's office with information from a witness who says he saw Lisa the night she was murdered and she wasn't alone. This person claims that they saw someone, potentially a suspect, take Lisa into a car not far from where Lisa's own car was later found abandoned. But wait, like, what did they see? Was Lisa still alive at this time? I wish I could tell you, but like so much else with this case, there's no names. There are no details beyond exactly what I just told you. So that's all we know. Days go by, literally seasons go by, summer turns to fall with no word about charges after this is turned over to the prosecutor. Apparently, the prosecutor does call a grand jury, but there is still no word about any indictments. Nothing. So Thomas Byrne isn't charged with any crime related to Lisa's murder, and neither is anyone else. By the time the one-year anniversary of Lisa's death rolls around, the case is ice cold. And it stays cold until June of 1983, when police opt for a new way to warm it up. They decide to exhume Lisa's body for a second autopsy. What does Lisa's family think about that? I mean, they're totally in favor of it. So police actually get the house permission so they don't have to get a court order or anything. According to the Honolulu Advertiser, police fly in the chief of forensic medicine from L.A. County to perform the second autopsy. He reaches the same conclusion. Lisa's body is too decomposed to pinpoint exactly how she died beyond that she didn't die of natural causes. So Lisa is reburied and once again her case goes cold. The grand jury ultimately dissolves in 1984 with no indictments and no closure. And her family spends the rest of the 1980s fighting police and the state's legal system in court over what they perceive to be negligence in the investigation. And while the news cycle moves on, Lisa's memory and her murder leave a chill over the island. In October of 1991, just a few months before the 10-year anniversary of Lisa's murder, the Honolulu Star Bulletin publishes this long article that's part retrospective and part call-out of the Honolulu PD. As Charles Meminger wrote, from day one, the investigation was up against a storm of department politics, personality conflicts, and poor investigation techniques that may have let a killer go free. And this piece also drops a bombshell. The case against Thomas Byrne was actually a lot weaker than police wanted to let on. Apparently, no one could actually place Thomas at the scene, and there wasn't a shred of physical evidence to tie him to Lisa. No blood, no murder weapon, no DNA, nothing. So here's what I don't get about this. We've seen time and time and time again how police close ranks, you know, they protect their own. Mm -hmm. So if the evidence wasn't directly pointing and like 
big flashing lights at Thomas, why focus so hard on him? Tell you the truth, I don't know. Someone just liked him for it, I guess, like felt it in their gut. I mean, honestly, I think it's refreshing to see them look hard at one of their own as as much as they would someone else on the other side of the blue line. But we learn actually part of this article that maybe they should have spent that time looking harder at someone else. Because in this same piece, it goes on to say that Thomas wasn't the only suspect. According to this article, this other suspect, who isn't named because of course he isn't, failed two lie detector tests. Now, that on its own doesn't mean much since polygraph results aren't admissible in court. But police also had a witness, this woman named Charlotte, who said that she saw this second suspect in a car with a woman that night only yards away from the spot where Lisa's body was later found. This witness then picked suspect two out of a photo lineup. Even with all of this, though, the lead homicide investigator on Lisa's case continued to focus on Thomas Byrne, up to taking Byrne's name to the prosecutor. Despite this avalanche of new information, Lisa's case remains at a standstill. More embarrassing revelations keep surfacing over the next few years, like how the medical examiner who performed Lisa's initial autopsy didn't order toxicology tests right away. Instead, do you even want to guess how long he waited for? I would be outraged if it was more than, like, a week and a half. Oh, then prepare to be outraged. He waited for a year. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, and that's not all, because once the results finally came back, they showed that Lisa had cocaine and maybe amphetamines in her system when she was killed. Now, this could have been huge in the initial investigation if police had known about it, because it could have given them new insights into Lisa's last days, even new theories about the night that she died. Yeah, Now, due to the flood of publicity that comes around the case over the past couple of years with these new revelations, police decide to try and capitalize it, to breathe new life into Lisa's case, calling witnesses, reviewing the old files, trying to right the past wrongs. But once again, the news cycle moves on, time passes, and other crimes demand their attention. And gradually, Lisa's case moves to the back burner. 17 more years go by until 2019 when a man named Bert Corneal decides it's time to take his story public. According to the Honolulu Star Bulletin special report I mentioned earlier, Bert is a former police lieutenant who actually worked Lisa's case back in 1982. And when he left the force, he became a private investigator for Lisa's family. He detailed his findings to Hawaii News Now, painting a damning picture of dysfunction around the investigation. According to Burt, when Lisa's body was exhumed in 83, it was still in the police body bag. Not only that, but the bag was filthy. It was contaminated with leaves and debris, and Lisa's body had never even been washed. (gasps) To make matters even worse, her skull and her jawbone seemed to be unaccounted for. What do you mean unaccounted for? Like, they're lost? Well, according to Hawaii News Now, the Honolulu police say that the medical examiner's office has them, but the medical examiner's office says, no, they were returned to Lisa's casket. But they're not in Lisa's casket. So without exhuming her body again to verify that, there's no way to know for sure. Beyond raising these questions about Lisa's remains, Bert also believes he's debunked the police impersonator theory once and for all. So remember how Lisa's driver's license was missing? Yeah. Apparently, Bert found it. What? 
Yeah, he retraced Lisa's steps the night she died and discovered that she'd actually stopped off at a grocery store on her way to dinner. And she paid with her stuff with a check and accidentally left her ID there at the store. And he says that he turned the ID over to police. So she didn't even have it when she left after dinner. Right. So this whole idea that she like rolled down her window, gave her ID to someone no longer even makes sense. Like we've been running down the wrong path for how long? But that's not even the biggest bombshell. This isn't even the biggest thing that he debunked because he tells KHON News he was in the room when Charlotte the witness picked the second suspect out of that photo lineup. He knows the details about what Charlotte saw. And as he reveals, Charlotte didn't just see a woman in a car with someone. The woman appeared to be asleep or unconscious to the point that when the suspect made a turn in his car, her head just like flopped over. And he knows what the suspect looked like back in 1982. More than that, he knows his name. This suspect number two was Doug Holmes, Lisa Au's boyfriend. But I thought he was cleared really early on. Not cleared. If you remember, I just said they they talked to him, but they were like on this path of wanting to track down police impersonators. In their mind, they had bigger fish to fry. Bert alleges that the lead detective on the case in 82 overlooked obvious reasons to look at Doug closer, like how apparently he had scratches on his face when he called law enforcement about finding Lisa's car. And apparently he admitted that he was trying to break up with her. And by the way, suspect number two, who we now know is Doug, is the same suspect who failed two polygraph tests. And he gave the rationale that he failed them because he felt guilty, guilty for not driving Lisa home himself in such bad weather. And apparently the lead detective just accepted his explanation. Just like with Thomas Byrne, Doug Holmes has never been charged with a crime relating to the murder of Lisa Au. To this day, almost 40 years after that fateful January night, Lisa's murder remains unsolved. Memories have faded, witnesses have died, and crucial evidence might be gone forever. Both of Lisa's parents passed away without knowing the truth about what happened to their daughter. But Lisa's siblings are still alive and they're still holding out hope that someday, somehow the truth will be found and justice will finally be done. If you have any information about the murder of Lisa Al, please call the Honolulu Police Department at 808-529-3111. Or you can go online and submit your tips anonymously at HonoluluCrimeStoppers.org. You can find all of the information for this episode, including our source material, on our website, CrimeJunkiePodcast.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at CrimeJunkiePodcast. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode.
Crime Junkie is an Audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Yeah.